And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Greetings and good evening, everyone, and welcome to another of our podcasts. We are calling it Podcast 66, but we've actually kind of messed up our count, so what the actual number is, we don't know. But it's close to 66. We do know that it is our December podcast for 2020, so we'll go with that. Welcome. It's also the holidays, and even though it's a pretty crappy holidays, we do have gifts for you. Unfortunately, you can't take them back. But there's always fast-forwarding. Uncle Frank, what's on the docket? Well, we have lots of seasonal music, most of it novelty, of course, and a bunch of retro Christmas commercials. But we also have beatnik poetry and a revisiting of a famous UFO abduction case. Then we decided it was time for a retrospect, a marathon of some of our favorite pretentious readings from Scholastic Books, those short stories or clips from the sinister or exciting far-off world of our childhood. And some other stuff, of course. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. Thank you. 
If you've got trouble, wait, don't run. This kind of trouble is lots of fun. Pop the Matic, pop the dice, pop the six, and you move twice. Race your men around the track and try to send the others back. That's pop matic trouble. The game is fun for dad and mother, and sis can trouble her mean old brother. Trouble, trouble, that's the name of Koner's pop matic game. The most exciting chase game that makes trouble fun for everyone. Get Koner's pop matic game. Trouble, that's the name. A monstrous landscape disfigures the cover of my well-worn, well-loved, 60-cent paperback called Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Demons. The author, Bernhard J. Hardwood, collected stories from around the globe about these creatures and compiled them for Scholastic Books in 1972. The book was unique for including stories from beyond Europe, like the story we've chosen today, which is from China. The Two Brides. Many years ago, a prominent Tartar family of Peking arranged for their son to marry a girl of similar rank, according to the custom of the times. While the wedding procession was underway, the closed sedan chair of the bride was carried past an ancient tomb. Just then, a whirlwind arose, spreading a cloud of dust so thick that all of the attendants were temporarily blinded. When the sedan chair reached the husband's house, two identical brides emerged. The parents of the young man were astonished. It was impossible, however, to make any inquiries about the matter at this advanced stage without offending anyone. Thus the proper rituals were performed, the necessary offerings were made, and the ceremony was concluded. The young bridegroom's feelings of concern were soon dissipated, and he thought to himself, perhaps it may be better to have two brides. Who knows? Later that night, dreadful cries were heard from the bridal chamber. The door was forced open at once. On the floor lay the prostate form of the husband, while on the bed lay a single bride, her eyes torn from her sockets and blood streaming down her face. 
Upon searching the house, the servants discovered a large black and gray bird with a sharp beak and claws perched on the roof beam. As they searched for weapons to attack the sinister creature, it flapped its wings and flew out the window. When the young man regained consciousness, he told how one of the two brides had struck him in the face with one of her sleeves, blinding him. Immediately afterwards, he said, a great bird had flown at him and pecked out his eyes, for that bride was a demon or an evil spirit, a kui, as the Chinese call it, who often commit evil deeds for evil's sake. I want
crunchy, chewy, chocolatey candy bars now at the concession stand. Make your selection from the largest assortment ever gathered together under one roof. So hurry, hurry, hurry before the big show begins. Treat yourself. Uh, treat yourself? Brother, am I a salesman? And now here's something entertaining, if a little depressing. I call this one Diagnosis. You say your name is society and you think you're sick. Sit down, patient, and I'll examine you. Uh-huh. Just what I thought. That complexion of yours, gray as a flophouse bedsheet. Your breath, reeking of smog and sewer gas. Headaches. What do you expect with nothing but cash registers clanging inside your empty skull? Of course your stomach hurts. You've swallowed too many dreams, too many hopes, and turned them into one gigantic ulcer. Look out. Your hands are trembling. Any minute now, and you may drop a bomb. I've got news for you, society. You're not sick. You're dead. And I'm going to bury you and dance the twist on your grave. I'm frosty, I'm made of snow, corn cob pipe, and button nose are jolly. Happy soul, got two eyes made out of coal. I'm frosty. I'm made of snow, corn cob pipe, and button nose a jolly. Happy soul, got two eyes made out of coal, made out of coal, made out of coal, made out of coal. Frosty the Snowman is a story they say, but the children all know he came alive that one day. They placed the hat on his head, then he stopped being dead, started dancing instead. Wanna play? Frosty said, "Incredible." Big fat snowman living just like me or you. He was laughing too. Now you're saying, how's this possible? A magic hat from a brat, can you imagine that? But Frosty the snowman knew that he had to go cause the hot sun could melt him back into H2O. So he took off and ran, his broomstick there in his hand, yelling out the command, catch me if you can. Right through the town square, running here, running there. His icy ass was running everywhere. Kids were following Frosty cause they thought he was down. So Frosty led his frozen posse through the streets of town as Frosty started to thaw. He ran into the law. He was gonna get popped by a big traffic cop. But he only paused a moment when he heard him holler stop. Cause Frosty the snowman had to hurry and rush. The hot sun that day was turning Frosty to slush as he started to die. Frosty waved a goodbye, but the kids heard him say, I'll be back here someday. I'm Frosty. I'm made of snow, corn cob pipe, and button nose a jolly. Happy soul got two eyes made out of coal. I'm frosty, I'm made of snow, corn cob pipe, and button nose a jolly. Happy soul got two eyes made out of coal, made out of coal, made out of coal. Thumpity thump thump thumpity thump thump. Look at frosty. 
Thumpity thump thump thumpity thump thump over the hills of snow. Encyclopedia Brown, Boy Detective. The Case of the Scattered Cards. At nine o'clock that night, Encyclopedia climbed into bed. He lay awake a long time. He thought over what his mother had said to him about being a detective when he grew up. In the morning, he had made up his mind. He would go into the detective business and help people. He wouldn't wait until he grew up. It was summer and school was out. He could begin at once. Encyclopedia got out of bed and searched through his closet. He dug out a toy printing press a Christmas gift from his Uncle Ben two years ago. As soon as Encyclopedia finished breakfast, he printed 50 handbills. When the ink was dry, he put the handbills in all of the mailboxes in the neighborhood. Then he went home and asked his mother for a big piece of cardboard. She gave him a dress box from the Bon Ton store. Encyclopedia borrowed the kitchen shears and cut out a square piece of cardboard. He took a black crayon and carefully lettered a sign. The handbills and the sign said, Brown Detective Agency, 13 Rover Avenue, Leroy Brown, President. No case too small, 25 cents per day plus expenses. Encyclopedia nailed the sign on the door of the Brown's garage. The next morning he sat in the garage, waiting for somebody with a problem to drop in. Nobody dropped in, only the rain. The roof of the garage had a hole in it. Rain fell all morning, all afternoon, and all the next day. Encyclopedia stared at the rain and felt lower than a submarine's bottom. He thought about taking down the side and going to see what new teeth Charlie Stewart had added to his collection. Or maybe digging for worms with Billy and Jody Turner and fishing off a bridge at Mill Creek. Suddenly a pair of rubbers and a raincoat appeared in the doorway. Inside them was a small boy. My name is Clarence Smith, said the boy. I need your help. No case is too small, said Encyclopedia. Is it murder? No, said Clarence, backing away. Kidnapping? asked Encyclopedia. Blackmail? No. No, said Clarence weakly. 
It's a tent. He placed a quarter on the gasoline can beside Encyclopedia. The tent is mine, but the tigers say it's theirs. You are having trouble with talking tigers? asked Encyclopedia. Oh no, replied Clarence. Tigers, that's the name of a boys' club near the canal. The boys are plenty tough, all of them, but their leader Bugs Meany is the toughest one. Take me to their leader, commanded Encyclopedia, and to your tent. I'll do both, said Clarence. Bugs Meany is sitting in the tent this very minute. After a short walk, the two boys came to the tent. It stood in the woods between the canal and the Pierce junkyard. Six older boys were sitting around a wooden box inside the tent. They were playing cards. Which one of you is Bugs Meany? Encyclopedia asked. Me, said the biggest and dirtiest boy. What's it to you? You are in my tent, squeaked Clarence. I found it. I mended all the holes in it. Scram, growled Bugs. You know I found the tent in the junkyard, said Clarence. You watched me put it up here last week. Get going, said Bugs. I saw you steal it from our clubhouse this morning. Mind if I come in out of the rain? Encyclopedia asked. As he ducked inside the tent, one of his feet hid an extra pack of cards lying beside the wooden box. The cards were scattered over the ground. Hey, what's the big idea, said Bugs. The idea is a simple one, said the private detective. See these cards? They are dry, not the least bit muddy, though I scattered them over the ground. Clarence didn't steal this tent from your clubhouse. Bugs closed his hands into fists. His chin sprang out like the drawer of a cash register. Are you calling me a liar? Of course not, said Encyclopedia. I'm simply going to tell you what I'll tell the police. Encyclopedia spoke quietly into the older boy's right ear. Bugs listened. His face grew red and then redder. Suddenly he called, Come on, tigers! Let's get back to the clubhouse. It's no fun here. When the tigers had left, Clarence said to Encyclopedia, Gosh, what did you say to Bugs? Encyclopedia smiled. I pointed out why you couldn't have stolen the tent from the tigers' clubhouse. How did Encyclopedia know this?
Epilogue, or rather, the solution to the case of the scattered cards. Bugs Meany said that Clarence had stolen the tent from the Tigers' clubhouse. This morning, that is. On the second day of the rain. Therefore, the ground under the tent should have been wet. But when Encyclopedia scattered the cards with his foot, he discovered that the ground inside the tent was dry. This proved that the tent had been put up before the rain, as Clarence claimed, and not during the rain this morning. As Bug said,
Merry Christmas. He's a demolition demon in a beat-up Chevrolet. It ain't worth a dollar, so he wrecks it every day. Now here is Kenner's SSB smash-up derby set. And you can hoot and holler, cause you ain't seen nothing yet. Crash, bang, crack them up, put them back again. Crash, bang, smash them up, it's smash-up time, my friend. Kenner's SSP smash-up derby set comes with everything you see right here. Last October in the quiet Mississippi town of Pascagoula, two local men confronted authorities with a rather bizarre story. Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker told of a strange craft landing near their fishing site and of being taken aboard by three unearthly creatures. The two men were questioned under hypnosis and lie detectors, but their story remained intact. One of the men suffered a nervous breakdown and is still under treatment. Among the skeptics were Ralph and Judy Blum, already at work on a UFO book. With W5 last week, Ralph and Judy returned to Pascagoula. Judy and I stumbled into this book. It, it came to us to be written. Uh, suddenly, we were in a wave of waves. UFOs were being seen across the country again. We were in what they call a flap. And people began experiencing things that they couldn't explain. Something was happening in our skies, in the midst of Watergate, Agnew, the energy crisis, the Middle East. Something was happening, and people couldn't understand what it was. We spoke about UFOs, but nobody really knew. And then, uh, then it hit right here, where we are. It hit Pascagoula. Uh, Charlie Hickson entered the news, and we had a book to write. Something happened October of 73 That would go down in history The spaceship came with many blue lights Set down near them in the night Three little men came out and took them inside They looked them over with one big eye They say what they saw was the real They know they were the ones that saw the pastel a UFO we were sitting on the other side of the pier with our, our feet, you know, over toward the river, fishing in, in the river. And the fish still wasn't biting, so I told Calvin, I said, well, you know, we might as well go home. But I guess that was when I heard it. It was some kind of zipping sound. And when I turned on around in this area out here, about 40 or 50 feet out there, uh, there was some, some kind of crab, you know. It was looked like it was going to come right onto the ground. But it, it came on down and hovered about, oh, about a foot and a half or, or two feet off of the ground. We didn't know what to do, you know. Uh, the river behind us and, and uh, that out there, not knowing what it was. So, and then before we uh, had time to really do anything, it seemed like an open appeared. Uh, toward the end, it was, you know, toward us. And blue light, it had, it had blue flashing lights as it was, you know, approaching the ground, but then they went out, and when the opening appeared, some source of light came from the inside, it was just almost blinding. Sheriff Diamond, can you tell me just what happened that night? No, sir, I can't. All I can tell you is it was two men came into the Sheriff's Department approximately 8.30 and 9 o'clock. They were all excited and upset, wanting to climb the walls, hysterical, crying. That's actually all I know is what happened. As far as me seeing what happened, I don't know. Of course, 
we could see them in, in the in the opening coming from you know when it started out to cry. But did I you think it tell. was people coming out at first? Well, they, they had they had uh, I, I kind of thought it was people at first, you know, off like that. But of course, when they when they appeared there in, in front of me, um, it was the most shock I've ever had in my life. What what did you see? Um, well, they 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 were they were shorter than me. I'd say about five foot two or three, and they didn't have a neck. The head, it seemed to come directly to their shoulders. And it had something that uh, came out to a point about where a, a nose would be, and, and on each side, the ears. And I believe that they looked like they were a little longer on the ears than the nose. But still pointed the ears. They were still pointing, yes. But since I was down there, and since I was a physician, and several other scientists and investigators were asked to, to uh, consult and uh, and look into the situation. I was asked and if would I mind if I would be present, and I said I wouldn't mind at all. And while it is still very difficult for us to believe that a that a, a, a spaceship landed and that robot-type uh, creatures came out and actually took these two people into, into the spaceship, these men, in, in my opinion, believe that they saw this and that they were being honest in reporting what they have reported. But it seemed to me when they came out that doorway, or that opening or whatever it was, then just almost instantly, they were right there on us. And uh, their arms, they had arms, it, and I saw the arm moving here and, and in the shoulders, but they had webbed, I mean, their, their fingers were webbed, and then they had something like a thumb, and they were like this. Mm -hmm. We questioned them at length, and then we left the room and recorded that was, that was all the conversation they had, recorded between the two of them. And one of them kept wanting to pray. He said, I, after all I went through on this earth, he said, why should I have to see something like this? Calvin Parker, I was questioning him, and at one time he wanted to climb the wall. That's how, how nervous and how shook up he was. They had me uh, one on this arm like this, and on the other one, you know, they had my other arm like that. And they just, I just seemed to lift up to the same height they were off the ground, and, and we just moved into the crowd. Now inside, how did they, how did they lay you out. Do you remember how it happened? Um, yes. Uh, they, I didn't see any tables or chairs or anything mm -hmm. in there. I'm, I'm not saying it wasn't in there because the light was almost blinding, but I didn't see any. And when they when they carried me inside, they seemed to, to just lean me back, you know. And uh, this this eye, I keep referring to it as an eye, and it moved up to, in front of me about this close. Mm -hmm. And it started right at my eyes, looking me right in the eye. And it seemed that it hesitated there for a, a, a few seconds, and it just started moving over my entire body. When they, they brought me uh, from the craft uh, to along this area here, and they seemed to, they didn't drop me, you know, they just released me back to the ground. And uh, I fell. I, I don't know why my, my legs were weak. I don't know why it was the fright or what it was, but I, I fell onto the ground. And that's when I seen Calvin. He's standing right over here in this area, and he was standing facing the river with his arms outstretched like that, just like he was staring at something. Can you tell me about the lie detector test? Well, so that was run by Pilkington. Was it Pilkington? Uh, Pennington. Pennington. That they run this type of test about six times a day. And when they were asked to come over here to, to talk to these people, they had in their mind that they, it was just a big joke. And if I understand it correctly, they ran one test on Mr. Hickson, the 
machine showed that he was telling the truth. Then they run another one. And then the examiner, he began to wonder himself. So he ran the third test, and he believed just what Mr. Hickson had told him. Mr. Booth, tell me what happened that night in October. Well, I got up and come, had turned off the TV and come to the front door, which you can see right behind me, just as usual, checking to see if it was locked. So I looked out the window at the top, and naturally I saw this object above the street light out there. So naturally it caught my eye where the lights was on. I couldn't hear any racket or anything. So I opened the door after a few seconds to step out to see if I could really tell what it was. It just took off. Can you describe it? Well, it was round, had lights all the way around it, turning in a counterclockwise motion. It had a dome on top with a bright light shining out through the top of it. To tell the actual figure of it or anything, you couldn't tell. You could just see the lights and the one on top. When it happened to Charlie, the creatures, whatever they were, didn't communicate with him. Now, it's enough to say you saw a UFO to, to give you trouble these days in some towns. To be taken aboard is, is, is just a suspect idea. But somehow, if the creatures don't give you a message, you're just a touch less incredible. And Charlie says that what he said and what we wrote about in the book, uh, they, it was like they had a job to do and they came and they did it. I think there has to be a reason why that uh, Calvin and me was picked. Maybe because you could take it? Well, it might be. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that they, they know more of what's going on down here on this earth than we think. And I don't know, they might have been, you might say, looking for somebody that, uh, that could, uh, that could, you might say, hold up under this train and, uh, and convince people that, that, uh, that, that there is another world and there's some kind of life on that world. There were the ones that saw the Pascagoula UFO. That's our program for this week. W5 will not be seen next week. We're going to repeat CTV's prize-winning inquiry on wiretapping in Canada, Hear No Evil. We'll be back on the 16th of June with a special wrapping up the federal election campaign to that date. On behalf of Carol Taylor and the entire W5 staff, I'm Bruce Phillips. Good night. So many good little girls and boys The sleigh won't hold all those toys So heat up your hot chocolate thermos much There's a Christmas toy convoy revving up Santa got a semi flying down the road Southbound North Pole overload Got a wreath on the grill Star on the hood He's checking off his list So you better be good He's got a speaker on the top Playing jingle bells Red snow flaps on the matching wheels Tell me have you ever seen Stealing chrome Bye-bye, Santa got a semi. Santa called up the state patrol, said if you see them coming, boys, let them roll. We got a long night ahead and a big job to do the 
Brothers' new Ganipkin up is very easy to play. You simply try to ganip your three balls through the hoops into the other side, and the other guy tries to ganop his three balls into your side. But while you're ganipping, he's ganopping. You're trying to outganip him while he's trying to outganop you. So ganip down to your store and grab the new game from Parker Brothers before they're all ganoped. From Parker Brothers, ganip ganop. Shalom. Making lockers, I can smell those. And sometimes it's just got me. Light them candles in the window. For it, that's cause it's Hanukkah. Yeah, I like this and we will sing. All those miracles that God did bring. Your mouth, so we're gonna sing. Cause we didn't listen to the king. My menorah's looking pretty. Watch me, watch me, two, watch me, watch me, three, watch me, watch me, four, ooh, 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 five, watch me, watch me, six, watch me, watch me, seven, watch me, watch me, eight, 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 now watch me spin, spin it, I spin my Dre Dre, Dre Dre, now watch me spin, shin, nun kimmel, hey, hey, now watch me flip, flip my bow, day, day, now watch me win, like the Macca, baby, look at them flicking that wrist, look at them flicking that wrist, Look at them flicking that wrist, spinning that dreidel like this. Look at them flicking that wrist, give it a really good 
cool breeze. No religious freedom, but who fought back? Yeah, the Maccabees. Life over darkness, hope beat the heartless. God gave us miracles like you ain't never seen. Happy that we made it, so we gonna celebrate it. And you're gonna hear about it from 613. Spin my JJ. Now watch me spin. Shin, no gimbal. Hey, hey. I like that wick. La hot lick, nay, nay. Because that oil that Lockers I can Those lockers, those lockers Yum Shalom Back in the late 60s when I first heard the title of this book I was intrigued But when the cover was revealed to me An obsession was kindled The cover showed a ramshackled homemade robot Somehow sinister in its almost fluorescent color Glowing in an otherwise dark and ominous night while two children looked on in horror, or at least that's how I saw it. And so I was sucked into the mystery of Shadow Pond. Margie heard the clock in the downstairs hall strike twelve before the dim, dreamy feeling of sleep really overtook her. With a tired sense of relief, she gave herself up to it and the day's worries drifted away. Suddenly a loud metallic buzzing noise shrilled through the midnight silence. Margie's sleep was so deep, she only buried her head deeper in her pillow and tried to push the disturbing racket away from her ears. A hoarse shout startled her wide awake, and she sat up all a tremble. Neil, Daddy was bellowing. Are you fooling with that confounded robot? Shut it off, for heaven's sake, shut it off. Neil's alarm voice came from the hall. I'm up here, Daddy. I didn't touch it. There must be somebody down in Grandpa's room. The weird buzzing sound continued to fill the house. Daddy leaped out of bed and catapulted down the stairs, with Neil right at his heels. Mama followed as far as the head of the stairs, turned on the lights, and peered anxiously after them. Margie stood beside her, still shivering from the suddenness of her awaking. In a moment, the buzzing noise ceased, and Daddy and Neil appeared at the foot of the stairs. Mama and Margie hurried down to join them. It must have been an accident, Daddy grumbled, rubbing his hip that had bumped against something in the darkness. That contraption of Neil's got started up somehow. It never should have been left in there. But it couldn't have gone off by accident, Neil protested. I had those wires fixed, so you had to open a window or a door to make the connection that would set them off. Well, the door was closed and so were the windows when I got there, Daddy said. But that infernal machine was still buzzing anyway. Why don't you get your slippers on and go outside and look around, Mama suggested. You're too excited to sleep, all of you, and the night air might cool you off. Daddy didn't think there was much sense in poking around the yard after midnight. But Neil and Margie were so eager to try it that he agreed. It's silly to think anybody would try to break into Grandpa's room now, he said. The letters have already been stolen, and there isn't another blessed thing of any value in there. 
They walked up the driveway, flashing their lights around the shrubbery and trees and pausing now and then to listen for footsteps. Margie stayed with them at first, because the darkness was frightening, even though, like Daddy, she thought the buzzer had gone off by accident. But as her eyes became used to the dimness and her fear subsided, she wandered off by herself across the wide front lawn, enjoying the cool freshness of the outdoors after the stuffy heat of her room. She stood beside Mama's old-fashioned white rose bush and looked up at the stars, big and glittery in the black sky. How beautiful they were. On the still night air, the little rustling murmurs of insects and leaves were pleasant to her ears. It was fun to be outdoors in the middle of the night like this. A faint sound of something moving across the grass suddenly made her catch her breath. On the other side of the rose bush, somebody was hurrying along quietly and stealthily. Whoever it was stopped for a moment, and Margie was aware of a new sound, the loud panting breaths of a person who had been running very fast. He was so near, she could have reached an arm through the rose bush and touched him.
That's all the family news that we're allowed to talk about. We really hope you'll come and visit us soon. I mean, we're literally begging you to visit us and make it quick before they message redacted. Now it's time for Christmas dinner. I think the robot sent us a pie. You know I love my soil and green. Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime. Where we're working in a mine for our robot overlords. Did I say overlords? I meant protectors. Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime. Here it comes, the whole of power from Sonic Sound. Now, when you pull that T-stick, those SSP racers howl with power. Take that action. Crush them. Smash them. New SSPs with Sonic Sound. Super Stalker. King Cobra. Detonator. Kenner's SSP racers for 72. Now, with Sonic Sound. Each sold separately. Shopping around for Christmas trees What a crappy holiday Today they smell so fresh and green They'll be dead on Christmas Day This was a tale that was swapped around from kid to kid in third and fourth grade. And like all true stories, it left its mark on all of us. From Strange But True by David Duncan, the elevator operator. Frederick Blackwood, the famous English diplomat, known as Lord Dufferin, once saved his life because he recognized a ghost. His encounter with the supernatural began while he was staying overnight at a friend's house in Ireland. He couldn't fall asleep, and all at once, he was aware of something eerie, something he could not explain. With senses sharp and alert, 
he got out of bed and went to the window. Moonlight of unusual brightness flooded the grounds. He heard moaning. He listened, tensing. There it came again. I must get hold of myself, he thought. His mind shook off the stories he'd heard of the haunted old Irish houses. It is the breeze stirring in the trees. The moaning grew steadily louder and closer. As Lord Dufferin squinted into the deep shadows cast by the huge ancient trees, he saw something move. Then he heard panting. A man staggered from the shadows into the bright moonlight. He carried a long black box on his back, and he was moaning and panting under its weight. Lord Dufferin left his room and hurried out into the lawn. In the full moonlight, he saw the black box was a coffin. Here, he called. What are you doing with that? The man lifted his head from under his burden. Lord Dufferin saw his face and recoiled a step. It was a face so ugly and evil that he would never forget it. Was the man a grave robber? Lord Dufferin nerved himself. What are you doing with that, he called again. As he approached to within a few strides, the man in the coffin disappeared before his eyes. Shaken, Lord Dufferin searched for signs of footprints in the dewy moonlit grass. There were none. Returning to his room, he wrote the details of the bewildering experience in his diary. When he laid down his pen, he believed he had written an end to the matter, even if he would never forget that face. But ended the matter was not. Years passed, during which Lord Dufferin served England as ambassador to Italy and to Russia, and as the Governor General of Canada. Then in 1891, he was named ambassador to France and in the city of Paris, he met the ghost again. The place was the Grand Hotel. Lord Dufferin stood waiting for an elevator to take him up to a reception. The other men in the lobby moved aside respectfully to let him enter first. The door opened. Lord Dufferin started forward, then froze as he saw the elevator operator. How could he forget that ugly, evil face? The operator was the same man he had seen carrying a coffin years before in Ireland, the man who had vanished into thin air. Calling upon all his self-control, Lord Dufferin betrayed no outward sign of terror. To the others waiting, Lord Dufferin mumbled an excuse and bid them go ahead. As they crowded into the elevator, he rushed into the hotel office. He must know who the man was. The crash sounded as he reached the office door. A cable had broken. The elevator had plunged five stories, killing everyone inside it. At the insistence of Lord Dufferin, the secret service of England and France sought to learn the identity of the mysterious elevator operator. Who was he? Where had he come from? But no one ever found out.
dashing through the bush in a rusty holden ute, kicking up the dust. Esky in the boot, Kelpie by my side, singing Christmas songs. It's summertime and I am in my singlet shorts and thongs. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Christmas in Australia on a scorching summer's day. Jingle bells, jingle bells, Christmas time is beautiful. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a rusty holden ute. The kangaroos, Swaggy climbs aboard. He is welcome too. All the family is there, sitting by the pool. Christmas Day, the Aussie way by the barbecue. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Christmas in Australia on a scorching summer's day. Hey! Jingle bells, jingle bells, Christmas time is mute. Come the afternoon, Grandpa has a doze, the kids and Uncle Bruce are swimming in their clothes. The time comes round to go, we take a family snap, then pack the car and all shoot through before the washing up. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Christmas in Australia on a scorching summer's day. Jingle bells, jingle bells, Christmas time is beautiful. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a rusty holding you. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a rusty holding you. G'day, I'm Bucko. And I'm Chad. And this Christmas, make yours an Aussie Christmas. Jingle bells, jingle bells, Christmas time is beautiful. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a rusty old and you. Frosty the Obo got out on parole. If Santa sees you coming, you can say goodnight, cause Santa Claus has got a new truck. Aussie Christmas with Bucko and Chef. It's French for yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> This is Kenner's Screen of Show, the amazing take it any place projector. Show them here, show them there, take it almost anywhere. Seven great color shows like Sabrina and Archie. Slip in a cassette and the show is on. Hey, here's the Hair Bear Bunch. There are over 100 scenes, bright even in daylight. See exciting shows from both sides with Kenner's Screen of Show projector with five cassettes. portal opens into a strange and forbidding world. Two figures enter from that shimmering portal into this world. They are here on a mission of rescue. Rescue from this dangerous land in a dangerous time. Scholastic Books presents Lester Del Rey's Tunnel Through Time. There wasn't anything to it. We just stepped through. 
Perhaps there was a little physical reaction that would have hit a person in good condition. With me, it was a slight chill. Goose pimples. But that could have been emotional. We stepped into the ring. We took one step, and the scene changed. That was it. We were outdoors, and the sun was shining, and there was a breeze blowing. And my first thought was, we haven't gone anywhere. We can't see them, but they're still here. Dad standing at the edge of the platform, hiding everything behind the wall he built, and Gabe and Dave at the control panel. The rainbow ring had stayed with us about ten seconds, and then it faded. We were standing in a small, grassy park with trees and forests in one direction, and rough, bare, rocky country in the other. We were at the borderline between the two. Off to our left was a big swamp that went for a mile or so, and then vanished into a green forest. We were both scared. Do things look different to you, I asked. Bigger, maybe. Hotter, he said. Well, we won't win anything standing, he said Pete. So which will it be, the forest or the desert? Just then, our interest was drawn elsewhere. Everything around us began to shake. Earthquake, I pleaded. Volcano, Pete said. And he was right. There was a sound like far-off thunder, and straight ahead of us, over the harsh, rocky desert, a great spout of black smoke smeared up into the sky. The earth continued to shake, and the black smoke bellowed, and then close to the horizon, a cushion of red fire. A big one, Pete muttered. I hope it doesn't break things up. I remembered now that the age of the dinosaurs was also the age of the volcano. Fire spouts dotted the land, and the earth was a great furnace, with safety valves close to the surface. The volcano's vibration of the earth lessened, and became more like the grumbling of an upset stomach. We moved on towards the forest. The temperature dropped sharply as we went into the shade. The ground underneath was damp, but quite solid. Most of it was impassable unless we followed the path of a great beast that had forced its way through. There were many bright colored tendrils and vines and creeping parasites. They were strung out along the path like bright ribbons. Watch out for snakes, Pete said, although I imagine most of them will be near the swamp. I stopped suddenly. Look, this doesn't make sense, our slogging around in here. Tom will be expecting help. He'll be looking for us as hard as we're looking for him. So? He'll stay in the open, and he'll expect us to do the same thing. Well, that makes sense. Pete said, then we'd better... Look out! I saw pure horror wash into his face and turned to look where he was looking over my shoulder and saw a multicolored nightmare slithering silently towards us. At first it looked like a human face. A hideously evil old man with a jaw full of terrible teeth lunging toward us through the heavy growth. This old man had a stringy beard of many colors that streamed out behind the great savage head. Then I saw the long, twisting body behind it. It was a garishly colored sea serpent of incredible length. We had warning because the great reptile was approaching us along the path. If this had not been the case, it could have been upon us from the cover and we would not have had a chance. Luckily, we had our rifles. I brought mine up to my shoulder and fired. Of course, I missed. Hitting the twisting, slithering thing would have been a miracle. Pete stood frozen, staring at the monstrosity, his eyes fixed on it like he was under hypnosis. 
Run, I yelled. Try to make for the open land. There's no protection for us here. All we could have done in the jungle growth would have been to get tangled up and become easy prey. I fired once more and turned to run. Run, I yelled again, and in desperation I slapped Pete's ashen face. This brought him out of it, and we were both kiting it back the way we had come, with that horrible hissing sound coming right behind us. The snake was gaining ground, but not as fast as I feared it would. The hissing, like the continuous escape of hot, angry steam, grew louder, but the edge of the forest was close. We dashed out into the open, and now Pete got his voice back. This is crazy. Out here he's going to get us for sure. It was going to get us in there for sure. Out here we can fight. But I have got a hunch about something. Follow me. The reptile had hesitated at the edge of the forest, and I glanced back and saw it more clearly. It was even more hideous than it had appeared in the jungle, but now I saw that its frightful beard was a lot of creepers and tendrils. The snake had hooked onto them as it came through the jungle. I pointed out the way towards some rough, scaly ground I had seen beside a rock pile, and as I kept glancing back at the snake, I saw that it was hesitating because it wasn't sure of its ground. The head stood six or seven feet tall, and the rest of its thirty or forty foot body was used to wind around and give it locomotion. As I watched running sideways, the snake began hissing louder and moved the front part of itself back and forth along the edge of the grass cross move it, covering perhaps 10 or 15 feet, as I had hunted for a place to push through onto the new surface. That gave me hope that my idea would work. When the snake made a plunge into the grass and came forward again, I faced back around and caught up with Pete. I debated stopping and taking my chances with the rifle and the pistol, but decided against it. If my idea fizzled out, there'd be plenty of time for a last stand. That way, I yelled, into the rough stuff. Ahead of us was about two acres of level ground covered with coarse gravel and small bits of boulder. Straight in, I said, over to the other side. We'd come close to the far edge when the snake, clearly planning to have us for dinner, reached the field. We stopped and waited. Get out your 45, I said. If it comes through, wait till it gets 50 feet away and then blast its head. And hope we hit it, Pete muttered. The slugs will stop it if we do hit it. The snake was closer to us now than it had been at the edge of the forest and was probably hungrier. That meant it less cautious and it slithered onto the rock field. But then it hissed horribly and stopped and pulled back. What's wrong with it, he said. Why does it come for us? I hope it's because the rocks cut its belly. There's deep water around here somewhere. That's a sea serpent. But this is the wrong age, Pete wailed. They're all dead by now. Okay, I said grimly. Just go tell the buster over there that he doesn't exist. Maybe he'll get confused and leave. Pete was gripping the butt of his 45. Why not try a few shots? Maybe we'll get lucky. I think maybe it's stopped now. I hope so. If we hit it and hurt it, it might get mad enough to just go right through the rocks regardless. The serpent was hissing horribly. We tried the rocks again, but they weren't the same soft, muddy bottom of the sea or the marshes. Its belly wasn't conditioned. But the snake had intelligence of a sort. This showed when it began to go around the rock patch and get to us from the other side. But when it got to our side, we were on the other. This could go on all night, Pete said. All right, let's try a few shots then, I said. If we stay out here much longer, one of those flying skeletons may come along and then we'll really be in trouble. You go ahead, Pete said. You're the better shot. I shouldered my rifle and centered on the huge head, moving with it, waiting for a still moment. The head moved back and forth horizontally, 
Then when the rifle was beginning to get pretty heavy, the snake had a motionless moment. I pressed the trigger and I was lucky. I didn't kill the thing, but I scored a hit that brought out the granddaddy of all hissing screams, and the reptile began thrashing wildly. It had been hurt. Some instinct for its native habitat asserted itself, and it headed back into the trees. Christmas in Las Vegas, decorate your tree with chips. Let's roll a yo beneath the mistletoe while that angel strips. Rudolph sold the sled, now he's betting on red in a casino made out of gingerbread. Christmas in Las Vegas, it's a trip. The wise men are rolling sevens, the elves are doubling down. Light a candle and pull the handle I love that jingling sound Every showgirl and boy ride in a sleigh of joy Pulled by eight tiny tigers eating Siegfried and Roy Christmas in Las Vegas, what a town Santa brought me two aces I wonder if I should split Hey waitress, bring me a drink while I think, what would Jesus hit? The strip lights are all twinkling. There's no room at the end. But because tis the season, they'll comp a sweet for Mary at the wind. Christmas in Las Vegas, it's Bethlehem with bling. Let's hope the dealer brings four newborn kings Cause my baby needs a brand new pair of five golden rings Christmas in Las Vegas really swings Cha-cha-cha-ching I said Christmas in Las Vegas really swings Yo, yo, yo You said it, Santa Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you. Good night. Tonight we have a scholastic retelling of a classic, Robinson Crusoe. We stood in the cabin looking at one another and thinking that our ship would break apart at any minute. We did not know how much longer we had to live. Then our captain said we would try to reach land in our small boats. On our deck, we found that one of her boats had a big hole in it, where the wind had driven something through it. But the other boat would still float all right. We got it over the side of the ship, and all that were left of us got into it. We were not much better off there than we had been on the ship. The waves lifted us high one minute and then dropped us the next. We pull on our oars as hard as we could. For a time, we seemed to be getting nearer the land. Then a wave as high as a house lifted us, and our boat was upset. And before I could so much as cry out, I found myself deep in the water. As I went down, down in the rough water, I thought I had met my end. 
but I was a very strong swimmer and I tried to save myself. As soon as my head came out of the water, I caught my breath. Before the next wave broke over me, I saw that I was being carried near the shore. I swam as hard as I could toward the land. Wave after wave lifted me and broke over me, but at last I felt the sand under my feet. When I woke up, the sun was shining. The storm was over and the wind had stopped, and the sea was still. Much to my surprise, our ship was still above water and was closer to shore than I had seen it last. The wind and the waves must have carried it to the sandbar near the shore. I made up my mind to try to swim to our ship. I must try to get some things that I needed. Near where I had landed, there was a hill. I took one of the guns and climbed to the top of it. From the high place, I could see a very long way. I did not know whether to be sad or glad about what I saw. I saw at once that I was on a big island. There were no signs of any other people that lived on the island. Far away to the west, I could see two other islands which looked even smaller than mine. I began thinking of making myself a place to live. I had not seen any other people or wild animals, but that did not mean that there weren't any. At one place in the rock wall, there was an opening into a cave. I made my mind up to build my house right in front of the cave. I drew a half circle on the ground before the rock wall, about ten yards out from the rock and twenty yards across. Then I cut down many small trees. I cut off their branches and made them sharp at one end, and I drove them into the ground on the line that I had made. I put them very close together. When they were fast to the ground, they were a little higher than my head. One by one, the years went by. Each year, I learned more and more. I found that there was no summer or winter on the island. But there was a rainy season and a dry season. I learned not to plant my grain at the beginning of the dry season. I learned not to let the rainy season come upon me with no food put by, for I could not hunt in the rain. I learned that if you put branches from one kind of tree into the ground at the start of the rainy season, they would grow and form a thick, tight fence. I used these trees to make a fence around the fields in which I kept my goats. I made myself a little house of these trees in the valley where the grapes grew. Sometimes I stayed out there for two or three weeks at a time in the dry season. It was in that valley that I had my grain fields. The ground was rich and the grain grew well. One day I went out for a walk along the shore of my island. I looked down and I saw the print of a man's bare foot in the sand. At once I was very much afraid. I stopped and looked all around, but I could see no one. I walked up and down the shore trying to find some other footprints. There was just the one. I came back to look at it again. It was the print of a very large foot. I could see the toes and the heel very well. I knew a man had made it. I was so afraid that I ran for my house. 
I got inside so fast that I do not know whether I climbed the ladder over my fence or whether I went straight through the hole in the rock. I shut the door in the rock and I took my ladders inside. I did not go to sleep that night at all. I lay there thinking of all kind of things, and the more I thought, the more afraid I was. This year, I'm really staying up all night. This year, I'm finally gonna do it right. This year, I've got a flawless plan that just can't fail. Dear God, I hope it doesn't fail. This year, will now become a legendary. Tale. I'm finally catching Santa Claus tonight This year I hit a camera in the Christmas tree This year he'll finally pay for his trespassery This year motion alarms equipped with laser beams by now I bet you sense a theme This year I'm drinking my third cup of straight caffeine I'm finally catching Santa Claus tonight This year I bought a stun gun Thought you'd never ask <laughs> This year Night vision goggles and a black ski mask this year, I set a tripwire net in case he runs. It'd be so funny if he runs. <laughs> this year, so what I cleaned out our vacation fund. I'm finally catching Santa Claus tonight. I fell asleep at 1 a.m. This year, I blame the turkey and the tryptophan. This year, I'm finally starting to rethink my life. Dear God, I've got to get a life. This year, maybe I'll join my children and my wife. They're at her mother's house tonight. This year, Oh wait, if Santa hasn't made it back Breaking his workshop set a trap This year That slippery Saint Nick won't expect That I'm finally catching Santa Claus tonight Santa. 
Here's Screech, the exciting new game that you play in the dark. Screech says, look for a spider. Have you got the spider? The cagey old owl lights up the glowing answer. Snakes and bats and skulls and spiders are in the magical eyes of Screech. It's fun to play in the dark. Screech from Parker Brothers. Walter. The bird that flies now pays later through the nose of amidextrous apathy. Necrophiles may dance upon the placemats in an orgy of togetherness. The highway of life cuts sharply through the shady ghettos and the ivy-covered tombs. And laughter rings from every time capsule in the star-spangled firmament. And in the deep freeze it is the children's hour. And no one knows that Duncan is murdered. And no one knows that Walter Paisley is born. Duncan knows, Tuesday Sunrise knows, alley cats and garbage cans and steaming pavements and you and I and the nude descending the staircase and all such things with souls we know that Walter Paisley is born. Ring rubber bells, beat cotton gongs, strike silken cymbals, play leathern flutes, the cats and cans and you and I and all such things with souls. We shall hear Walter Paisley is born and the souls become flesh. Walter Paisley is born. From strangely enough, another true tale. Curly was a sailor who was fascinated by high places. No mast was too tall for him to ascend, no cliff too sheer for him to peer over, and no tower too shaky for him to climb. He frequently talked of what a wonderful sensation it must be to fall from a great height. When his ship dropped anchor in the South American port, Curly was determined to climb an old abandoned stone lighthouse. His friends argued that he couldn't get to the top, and bets were placed on Curly's success. Another sailor was designated to go with him and act as a witness, and so the two entered the musty, damp old tower and started up the crumbling stairway. When they emerged on the balcony, far above the sand dunes, they tried to attract the attention of the group below, but the shouts did not carry to the men, who were playing cards directly beneath them. Curly's companion finally tied his jackknife in a handkerchief Curly put in his lucky coin to add weight, and they tossed the little bundle over the rusty iron railings of the beacon platform. They lost sight of it as it fell into the depths below and decided to start back down. Curly seemed to hesitate a moment. Then with a queer grin, he said, I know a quicker way. And he hurled himself over the old railings, plummeting directly down to the group below. The other man screamed a warning and then rushed down the stairs, fearful of what he would find when he reached the bottom. He burst out the old doorway, hoping that nobody else had been hurt by Curly's leap. To his astonishment, the rest of the group were still playing cards, so nothing had hurtled down upon them from the tower above. And nothing had. Curly hadn't landed. The group searched the ground for yards around, 
combing the tower, the dunes, and the water below them. But Curly was never seen again. They did find the tied and knotted handkerchief containing the jackknife, but Curly's lucky coin was no longer there. Perhaps that too, like Curly, had vanished on the way down. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, come light the menorah. Let's have a party, we'll all dance the hora. Gather round the table, we'll give you a treat. Dreidels to play with and lacas to eat. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, come light the menorah. Let's have a party, we'll all dance the hora. Gather round the table, we'll give you a treat. To play with the luckers to eat And while we are playing Our candles are burning low So low One for each night they shed a sweet light To remind us of days long ago One for each night they shed a sweet light To remind us of days long ago Jonah. 
There she blows! The whaling ship Star of the East was plowing through the South Atlantic off the Falkland Islands when the cry lifted. Ahead loomed the spout of a sperm whale, and, as yet unseen, the most singular of sea miracles since biblical times. Sails were set on the square river, and the pursuit began. In half an hour, the Star of the East closed a striking range. Immediately, a pair of 25-foot boats were launched. When the lead boat reached within a few yards of the whale, the harpooner aimed the newfangled spear gun. The point sank home to the blubbery side. The whale thrashed in pain. Sixty foot of sea monster weighing a ton of foot, rolled and twisted its powerful tail slamming the ocean. The violent churning lifted the second boat and flipped her over, tossing the crew into the water. Terrified, they clung to the underside of the hull till the whale was killed and they could be rescued. All were accounted for, save two. One of the missing men was known to have drowned, and the other was James Bartley, 21, an English sailor making his first voyage aboard the Star of the East. Captain Waterman entered the names of the men dutifully in the log, and after each he wrote, drowned. During the frenzy of the accident, no one could be sure just when or how James Bartley had disappeared. The matter of the unfortunate seamen, though, was quickly laid aside, for there was urgent work to do. The whale was tied to the ship. Using razor-sharp flensing blades, the men sliced and peeled the heavy blubber. At midnight, the work stopped. The exhausted men went below and slept till dawn, when they rose and returned to their work. The stomach was hoisted onto the deck, Inside was a large lump. The men thought at first that the lump might be emigress, a waxy substance found in whales and used for making the finest of perfumes. They were startled to see the lump move, slow movements like breathing. Captain Waterman was summoned, and he looked on as a long cut was made into the tissue. A shoe appeared, and an ankle. Inside the whale's stomach was the missing man, James Bartley, doubled up and unconscious, but alive. He bore only one outward sign of his ordeal. His skin was pasty white from the whale's digestive juices. A bath from a few buckets of icy seawater revived the body, but not his reason. He let out a howl, staggered blindly, struck the railing, and collapsed. He was carried to the captain's quarters, and for two weeks he lay strapped to the bunk, a raving lunatic. Gradually he recovered his senses. After a month, he returned to work. Barbie described his feelings on that horrible day in February, 1891, to Captain Waterman, and later to a board of inquiry of the British Admiralty. He remembered being hurled into the ocean. Suddenly he was surrounded by absolute darkness. He slid along a smooth passage that seemed to carry him forward. 
His hands touched a soft, slimy substance. He could breathe, but the heat was dreadful. A whale's blood is 104.6 degrees Fahrenheit. He recalled nothing more until he woke up in the captain's cabin. When the Star of the East returned to port, James Bartley quit the sea. The modern Jonah lived 18 more years, which he spent as a cobbler in his native Gloucester. Stuff away. We used to rep a 
competition So we drew up a petition We the undersigned feel undermined Let's redefine employment We know that we've got leverage So we'll hand the fat man a beverage He'll sit back while we attack The utter lack of our enjoyment It may be tough to swallow But our threats are far from hollow He may wonder where the toys went Christmas lights are blinking Cause we leave them up all year You trigger pick flamingos And start to sing when you walk in It's Christmas at the trailer park again The kids can't wait to see What Santa Claus has up his sleeve Our Hooters advent calendar Counts down to Christmas Eve Aunt Sarah's out of rehab And Uncle Jeff's out of the pen it's Christmas at the trailer park again. Fa la la and ho ho ho, past that turkey leg. Jingle bells and Batman smells and Robin laid an egg. We'll lounge around in Lazy Boys and help the Titans win. It's Christmas at the trailer park again. Around the 
living room for the family gift exchange. We met back in October and we swapped each other's names. A fight almost broke out over an NASCAR wallet chain. It's Christmas at the trailer park again. The women at the party all steer clear of Uncle Jack. His mistletoes duct taped to the bill of his John Deere hat. Aunt Clara's hugging Beth and Don, though she knows they live in sin. It's Christmas at the trailer park again. Fa la la, ho ho ho, past that turkey leg. Jingle bells and Batman smells and Robin laid an egg. There's a Dukes of Hazard marathon revving up on Channel 10. It's Christmas at the trailer park again. snowman joined the team a cabbage patch baby jesus an inflatable wise man it's christmas at the trailer park again it's three whole days of cooking just to feed all our kinfolk butter flavored crisco and velveta's bought in bowl mom's death by mayonnaise casseroles they hit with all us men it's christmas at the trailer park again Fa la la, ho ho ho, past that turkey leg. Jingle bells and Batman smells and Robin laid in hay. We'll lounge around in lazy boys and help the Titans win. It's Christmas at the trailer park again. Yeah, it's Christmas at the trailer park again. I said it's Christmas at the trailer park again. SISG proudly presents the re-re-return of the great Encyclopedia Brown in the case of the Red Harmonica. During the winter, Encyclopedia did his detective work at the dinner table. When school let out for the summer, he decided to help the children of the neighborhood. So he opened an office in the garage. Every morning after breakfast, he hung out his sign, Brown Detective Agency, 13 Rover Avenue, Leroy Brown, President, no case too small, 25 cents per day, plus expenses. Thursday afternoon, a small boy entered the detective agency. He looked as happy as a cheerleader in a graveyard. I want to hire you, he said, putting 25 cents on the gasoline can beside Encyclopedia. My name is Northcliffe Hicks. Yesterday was one sad day for me. 
How come, asked Encyclopedia. Soft music, replied Northcliffe. Do you know anything about soft music? It goes with soft light, answered Encyclopedia. Is this some affair of the heart? No, of the ears, said Northcliffe. He explained. Yesterday afternoon, he had been sitting by Mill Pond playing his new red harmonica. A big kid had come up holding a funny whistle. The big kid said, I might be good at playing loud, said Northcliffe, but he was better at playing soft. In fact, he claimed to be the champion soft music player of the world. Could he prove it? asked Encyclopedia. He challenged me to a soft music contest, said Northcliffe. His rules. That really tied your lips, eh? And how, said Northcliffe. Each of us had to play a tune so softly the other couldn't hear it and yet loud enough to wake a bulldog that was sleeping across the pond. What did you play? Kitten on the keys, said Northcliffe. I figured a dog would go for it. I might as well have played the dance of the Spanish onion on a Frankfurter roll. That mutt lay like a dead battery. Then the big kid said he'd blow Coney Island Babe on his whistle. I didn't hear a thing, but that bulldog jumped up and raced around crazy as a bee in a honeypot. Don't take it so hard, said Encyclopedia. You lost to a champion. I don't mind losing, said Northcliffe, but the big kid took my red harmonica. He said if he'd lost, He'd have given me his whistle, the liar. You should have made tracks, said Encyclopedia. I tried, but his three friends caught me, said Northcliffe. They wore shirts with the word tigers written across the chest. Tigers, I should have guessed, exclaimed Encyclopedia. The big kid was Bugs Meanie. Bugs Meany was the leader of a gang of tough older boys. They called themselves the Tigers. They should have called themselves the Umbrella Carts. They were always pulling something shady. Bugs must have blown a dog whistle, said Encyclopedia. People can't hear it. Only dogs can. And I thought I was going deaf, yelped Northcliffe. That no good cheat. Can you get back my harmonica? I can try, said Encyclopedia. I've dealt with bugs before. Let's go see them. 
The Tiger's Clubhouse was an unused tool shed behind Mr. Sweeney's auto body shop. Bugs was alone when Encyclopedia and Northcliffe arrived. He was puffing tiger rag on a shiny red harmonica. At the sight of the two boys, he switched to Shoe Fly, Don't Bother Me. Scram, he growled at Encyclopedia, or I'll put your head in a cast. Encyclopedia calmly relieved Bugs of the harmonica and played, I've heard that song before. Then he said, this is Northcliffe Hicks. He claims you stole his red harmonica. That soft music contest was a phony, put in Northcliffe. You blew a dog whistle. He took the harmonica and rendered the opening bars of You Took Advantage of Me. Soft music? Dog whistle? Cried Bugs. You're completely out of your tree. He snatched the harmonica and began playing Imagination. You couldn't beat me in a fair contest, and you know it, said Northcliffe, seizing the harmonica. He blew little white lies. Oh yeah, said Bugs. Let's see how well you play with loose teeth. He grabbed the harmonica and blew, just before the battle, mother. Cut the tough guy stuff, Bugs warned encyclopedia. That's Northcliffe's harmonica. I suppose you're going to say that you found it. Bugs blinked. Why, so I did, he said with a sly smile. I found it last night on a trash pile. Where, demanded Northcliffe. Along Miller Road, said Bugs. It was dark except for some blue lights strung on the palm trees by the trash pile. I saw something red shining. I walked closer. It was the harmonica. That's our trash pile, Northcliffe whispered to Encyclopedia. Dad strung blue lights for a party in the backyard yesterday, but I didn't throw the harmonica away. Honest. Bugs grinned, raised the harmonica to his lips and blew. The best things in life are free. Blow till you're blue in the face, said Encyclopedia. You won't make me see red. You stole the harmonica. What made Encyclopedia so sure?
Bug said he found the red harmonica on a trash pile at night. He described the trash pile by Northcliffe's house. He wanted Encyclopedia to believe that Northcliffe had thrown the harmonica away or misplaced it. But the only lights by the trash pile were blue. So Bugs lied. He could not have seen something red shining in the blue light. If only blue light shines on a red object, it would not appear red. It would appear black. Bugs gave back the harmonica after he had dashed off a few bars of Sad Heart of Mine. Well, that's it. Our December podcast is now coming to an end. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope that despite everything, you have some good times during this wrapping up of the year, and better times into the next. Uncle Frank, what's the one last thing? December 8th, back in 1925, was the birth date of that illustrious singer, actor, comedian, dancer, and proud vaudevillian, Sammy Davis Jr. Mr. Davis started out in entertainment at the age of three, and worked his way into every medium from Broadway to film and television and the recording industry. In his honor, we go out with one of his songs. And so this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong Whether I find a place in this world or never belong I gotta be me I gotta be me What else can I be but what I am I want to live Not merely survive I won't give up this dream of life that keeps me alive I gotta be me I gotta be me The dream that I see makes me what I am That far away cries A world of success Settle down, won't settle for less As long as there's a chance that I can have it all I'll go it alone, that's how it must be I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me I gotta be free I've gotta 
Somebody else, if I'm not right for me. 